Today we're beginning our study through the book of Isaiah. Some of the questions that perhaps we'll try to answer this morning. What is this book about? How was it the same or different from other similar books of prophecy? Why was it written? And so let's look at some of these ideas before we look at the main theme of the book, which I believe to be this. Judah's holy God will restore sinful people to holiness by his own righteousness and salvation. Judah's holy God will restore sinful people to holiness by his own righteousness and salvation. As we look at this book, we have the question, perhaps, first of all, of who wrote it. And uh, in our Bibles, we have the title of Isaiah, and he is, in fact, the author. And that's taken from verse 1, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos. And so what do we know about Isaiah? We know that he had a family. We see this in uh, chapter 7, uh, verse 3. There's a reference where it says, You and your son share Jeshub to go out and meet the king Ahaz. So he had a son. And then in uh, chapter 8, uh, there's this prophecy of judgment against these two uh, nations. And he said, in, says in verse 3 of chapter 8, I approached the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. Then the Lord said to me, name him, and gives him this long name, Maharshalah Hashbaz, which means swift to judgment, speedy to pray. Um, so he has a family. He has at least these two sons. Uh, there are many who believe that he was probably a priest because uh, the nature of his commission is in the context of the temple. Unless it was just a vision of the temple, if he's actually standing in the temple, then he would have needed to be a priest to be allowed in. And so uh, that parallels what we're looking at with Uzziah. Uzziah was not a priest, so he was not supposed to go in the innermost part and burn incense. He was not allowed to do the job of a priest, but it seems that perhaps Isaiah was. Uh, Isaiah's calling parallels that of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 1, we see this idea where Jeremiah says, I'm a youth, I'm not prepared to speak to the people. God sends the angel to touch his mouth with a coal. In Isaiah 6, which we just read, same kind of idea, but instead of saying, I'm young, Isaiah says, I'm unclean. Same sort of idea. You are now cleansed, you are now uh, purified, you're now able to speak for me. Uh, Isaiah is a contemporary of Hosea and Amos. Hosea and Amos are prophets against the northern kingdom of Israel, but they lived around the same time. Uh, Isaiah's uh, ministry stretches uh, across the reign of a number of kings here. So let's, let's talk about that as we come to the date for the book. Liberal scholars divide the book into two parts. Chapter 1 through 39, and then chapter 40 through 65 or 66. And uh, they attribute this book to at least two, possibly three authors, who use Isaiah's name as a cover for their own writings. And their reasons for claiming this are most prominently because they want to have doctorates and be recognized by people. But this, the, the, the reason that they would say that they would want to see two divisions of the book because they say, well, the second half of the book talks about things that have nothing to do with the first half of the book. The first half has a lot of historical records and statements of, those, of that nature, and the second half is all prophecy and things about the end times, and it just it doesn't fit with the first half. They would say something along these lines. Quite frankly, this is a ridiculous theory. For one, you don't have to talk about the same things throughout your entire book for it to be the same book by the same author. But more importantly than that, and probably this even stronger argument, would be the fact that Isaiah 
is the one who claims authorship as a prophet. He's not, uh, it's not someone else attributing it to Isaiah's name. There's no reason to think that. How long, when, when does Isaiah minister? Well, we see that he ministers during the reigns of Uzziah, also called Azariah. 2 Kings 15, 2 Chronicles 26. During the reign of Jotham, also 2 Kings 15 and 2 Chronicles 27. The reign of Ahaz, 2 Kings 16, 2 Chronicles 28. And Hezekiah, 2 Kings 18 through 20 and 2 Chronicles 29 through 32. And so we'll be continuing to look at those Old Testament passages from Kings and Chronicles to give some background to the book in the Sunday school hour. Uh, but those are the, the sections, the reigns of those kings are what parallel the ministry of Isaiah. And so there's no reason to assume that for a prophet who says, I'm a prophet, I'm speaking God's word, I'm ministering during these reigns, and I'm writing this book, that suddenly someone else has to come along and then record this second half to a book and, and then attribute it to his name just to get recognition. Even more importantly than that, Jesus quotes from the whole book of Isaiah and attributes it to Isaiah. For example, in uh, Mark 6, or rather Mark 7, verses 6 through 7, we hear this. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. And then Jesus condemns the Pharisees, saying, Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. Well, this is a quote from Isaiah 29, 13. But Jesus doesn't only quote from the first part of the book. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 17, it says this, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. He shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 42. There's a third reference Matthew 8, 16 to 17, which quotes from Isaiah 53, verse 4. Now, I suppose we can do what many of these liberal scholars also do and say, well, we, the Gospels were made up and, you know, the people who said they wrote them didn't write them. And so, of course, it's going to all fit together because, but there's no reason to go that route. You can take it as it is written, that it is the word of God that it is a complete unit, that it fits together the way that it does as we read it together. We saw this morning how the account of Second Kings and Second Chronicles is going to tie into Isaiah. There's references between all three of those books. We see how Jesus quotes from the entire book of Isaiah and, and treats it as Scripture. And so if we take Scripture at its face value and see the unity of the book instead of inventing creative theories because we want to sell books or, or theses or whatever else of our own, there's no reason to pursue these ridiculous theories is the main point that I'm trying to make. So, with that being said, when was Isaiah written? Well, Isaiah was written during Isaiah's lifetime, during the reigns of these four kings. It wasn't written 400 years later. It wasn't written after all the events that he speaks of, just so we can say, you know, they would say it had to be written later because they didn't believe in prophecy. If you don't believe in prophecy, you have to say the book was written after the historical event because if you say it was written before the event happened, then you would have to acknowledge that prophecy is a thing. 
And so the reason for all of these late dates and dividing the book up into different chunks and all these sorts of things basically comes down to an essential unbelief and denial that it is God's word and it is a unit and it is speaking of God. And so that's basically the two choices that you have. This is a book that is from God, that is unified with the rest of Scripture, that is quoted by other places of Scripture. The apostles also attribute the entire book to Isaiah. For example, uh, Romans 10, 16, and 20 ties into Isaiah 53, 1 and 65, 1. John 12, 38 to 41 ties into Isaiah 53, 1 and 6, 10. Matthew 3, 3 and Luke 3, 4 quote from Isaiah 40, verse 3. The apostles and the prophets and Jesus himself acknowledge this to be a part of Scripture in its entirety. And so we either accept that or we come up with all sorts of creative theories for why what it says is not true and we unravel the entire fabric of the Bible. So the correct dating of the book would be during the reign of these kings, somewhere between 749 B.C. and 686 B.C. And so, you know, did Isaiah write all of it in a single year? We don't necessarily have to say that. Did he write all of it at the end of his life? We don't necessarily have to say that either. All we know is that the book is written during Isaiah's lifespan as these events unfold, as God gives him these various prophecies in the time period approximately 700, 700 years before the birth of Christ. Even more important than the author about whom not much detail is given or the date about whom there is no real reason for controversy is the purpose of the book. Why does Isaiah write the book? As I said a few moments ago, Isaiah writes to show that Judah's holy God will restore sinful people to holiness by his own righteousness and salvation. As we saw from the reign of Uzziah, even so far this morning that we were looking at in Sunday school, you have a people who are led by kings who sometimes follow God to a certain extent, but not fully. Uzziah encourages people to worship God, but he doesn't destroy the high places where they worship pagan idols. He doesn't destroy the groves where they worship female fertility deities. He doesn't prohibit the people from doing all of these sorts of pagan practices alongside the worship of the one true God. And so even some of the best of the kings of Judah still are not fully faithful in following after God. They become proud. They lead the people in pride away from God and the people continue to decline in their idolatry and oppose God. And they are rebuked continuously throughout the book of Isaiah for these sorts of attitudes. And so one of the key themes of the book is this idea of sinful people. From the, the main idea that I mentioned to you a moment ago, God will restore sinful people. Sinful people is a big topic in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah writes to and speaks to condemn the idolatry of the people and announce God's coming judgment against his faithless people. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 1 to see an example of this. Isaiah 1 verse 2, Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Even what we would think of as a dumb animal, an animal that can't speak, an animal that is not a person, knows where home is, knows who the master is. And God is saying, these are even greater than my animals. These are my children, the sons of Israel. They don't know me. They've abandoned me. They've turned aside from me. And when I say that, it's not as though God is sort of wringing his hands and saying, 
oh, woe is me, I feel bad, I feel sad because they've run away from me. Rather, this is a, an, an, uh, it's almost like he's bringing a legal case against them. Here are the reasons for which I am condemning you, and I have just grounds for condemning you, and you deserve the punishment that I am bringing upon you. In case it wasn't clear that they had done wrong, verse 4, Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel, they have turned away from Him. So it's not just like they didn't come to visit God, and, and, and so God was sad because He hadn't seen His family for a while. That's sort of our way of thinking about things. It was rather God rightfully demanded worship from His people, they had abandoned that worship and they had wholeheartedly given themselves over to all sorts of sinful behavior. And so God rebuked them and brought judgment to them as a way of turning them back to himself. Verse 5, where will you be stricken again as you continue in re your rebellion? Verse 7, your land is desolate, your cities are burned with fire. But they didn't listen. And so, because the initial judgment of being defeated in battle and uh, being uh, reduced among the nations in terms of a position of status was insufficient to turn the hearts of the people back to him. God describes them in very clear terms of judgment. Verse 10, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now, is he actually talking to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah? No, those cities had been burned up long before. But God is comparing the iniquity, the sinfulness of his people Israel with that of those cities that he had destroyed long before. And he's speaking to them as though they are those cities, come back to life, behaving wickedly, deserving God's judgment. And throughout the rest of the chapter, God says this, I'm done with your sacrifices. I have no desire for your parade of uh, fake devotion in front of me. What do I want? Verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, truly the, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And at the end of the chapter, yet there is still hope, despite this great condemnation. Therefore, verse 24, the Lord God of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, declares, I will be relieved of my adversaries and avenge myself on my foes. I will also turn my hand against you and smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. Then I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. After that, you will be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. So God's saying, I'm going to purge the sin out of you. I've not given up on you, but you are going to go through a time of great judgment and testing. So Isaiah writes and speaks to condemn the idolatry of the people and announce God's coming judgment against his faithful people, a judgment which will purify them of that sin, particularly of idolatry. So sinful people is one of the main themes in the book of Isaiah. A second theme, God's own righteousness and salvation. We saw in chapter 11, which Paul read for us, that there is a day coming, future to Isaiah's time and future to ours as well, I believe, where he says, a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. What, here's the picture. The, the tree has been cut off. It's been devastated. It's perhaps even been burned with fire, but there's a green sprig coming up from it. 
And Jesus is the one who is anticipated in Isaiah 11, who is the one who in future days will reign over the earth. We see this, for example, in the book of Revelation. He'll rule the earth with a rod of iron. Uh, Here it says in verse 4, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Same kind of idea. He's going to rule in righteousness and judgment. And there's going to come a day in which all the nations of the world will gather before him. He'll recover the remnant of the people. And notice this, not just perhaps of Judah, but the remnant of his people who were scattered to places like Assyria and Egypt and Cush and so forth. Who was scattered in that way? It was the northern tribes of Israel who were scattered far more than the southern tribes, and they never came back. A few in more recent days you know, moved to the land of Israel uh, in the time period following World War II, but there was never the wide-scale restoration of the northern tribes of Israel the way there was with uh, Cyrus returning the two southern tribes to the southern kingdom uh, of Judah and Benjamin that were kind of merged into one tribe. There was never a restoration of the people, and yet there's a coming day in which God is going to restore the people, bring them home. And he's going to do that through the ministry of Jesus. And so when he speaks of God's own righteousness and salvation, Isaiah offers hope of the Messiah, who would be the perfect servant in contrast to the failed servants of Isaiah's day. We see a glimpse of this in chapter 11. We see it even more clearly in the so-called servant songs. That's just a title that people who've read through the book of Isaiah have given these four sections in the later part of the book. Let me read for you from chapter 49. Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named me. He had made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me. He has made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show my glory. But I said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely the justice due to me is with the Lord and my reward with my God. And now says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel may be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He said, It is too small a thing that you shall be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel, the remnant of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations, so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One, To the despised one, the one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see and arise. Princes will also bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. We see in verse 13, Shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break into joyful shouting, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. And it goes on from there. But there are these great pictures of the ministry of Jesus, both when he comes as a child, as a baby, and then uh, grows to be a man, ministers, suffers, dies, is resurrected, and also the ministry that he will have in future days. He is the perfect servant of God in contrast to unfaithful servants. And we see in him God's own righteousness and salvation. I said in the statement that I made that it was Judah's holy God who restore sinful people. We see the idea of Judah in the historical events that are recorded for us by Isaiah. He records things like his own prophetic calling, Isaiah chapter 6. The lives of the kings, his interactions with them, for example, in chapters 7 and 8. The actions of the people of Israel and Judah themselves that are described throughout the book. These things bear out the previous two themes, that sinful people... 
God who is righteous, who brings salvation. Judah is the central focus of the historical aspects of this, and their interactions with the northern tribes of Israel, described sometimes as Ephraim in this book, as well as various nations that surround them. With regard to the nations, another theme that we see in the book is the idea of a holy God. A holy God who announces judgment against not just his own people, but against surrounding nations, such as Assyria, Babylon, Moab, Syria, Egypt, Tyre, and even the whole earth, particularly the first two nations, for their excesses in punishing Israel and Judah. He basically says, you have conquered them, but you went too far. And so now in turn, you also will be punished. We see this, for example, in Isaiah chapter 10. In Isaiah 10, verse 5, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. I send it against a godless nation and commission it against the people of my fury to capture the spoil and to seize plunder, to trample them down like mud in the streets. Yet it does not so intend, nor does it plan so in its heart, Rather, it is its purpose to destroy and cut off many nations. Verse 12, So it will be when the Lord has completed his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the pomp of his haughtiness. And, verse 20, In that day a remnant of Israel and of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. The Israelites relied on Assyria. Assyria turned on them and conquered them. In that, God will purge them of their trust in pagan nations and will turn them to trust in himself instead. And so, uh, God says, verse 25, O my people who dwell in Zion, do not fear the Assyrian who strikes you with the rod and lifts up his staff against you the way Egypt did. For in a very little while, my indignation against you will be spent and my anger will be directed to their destruction. The holy God will not permit the pagan nations who, pure, who purge the idolatry from among his people through conquest, through war, through defeat. He will not allow those pagan nations to be exalted in their own pride, just like his own people Israel was exalted in pride, but rather he will in turn punish those pagan nations, restore the remnant of his people, deliver them, and, and turn away his anger from them. And so the pagan nations thought, we have conquered Israel, we are secure, we have victory. And God reminds them that they, in fact, are not secure. The same is said of Babylon. He says, Long before Babylon falls to the Medes and Persians, verse 17, Behold, I'll stir up the Medes against them, who will not value silver or take pleasure in gold. Verse 19, Babylon, the beauty of kingdoms, the glory of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It will never be inhabited or lived in from generation to generation, nor will the Arab pitch his tent there, nor will shepherds make their flocks lie down there, but wild beasts will live there. It says at the end of verse 22, her fateful time will soon come, her days will not be prolonged. And in verse 14, the people will bring up this taunt against the king of Babylon, verse 4. And so the pagan nations who in their pride think we are secure are reminded by a holy God that not only will he purge the evil from among his own people, but he will also punish them for their wickedness and their excesses in what they have done to the nations of Israel and Judah. All these themes are then brought together in this idea of restoration. Isaiah foretells the restoration of God's people after their exile, speaks of God's ongoing faithfulness to his covenant in contrast to worthless idols. We see this, for example, in Isaiah chapter 44. 
where it says in verse 21, Remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you, you are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud, and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Shout for joy, O heavens. Shout joyfully, uh, for the Lord has done it. Shout joyfully, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into a shout of joy, you mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and he shows and in Israel he shows forth his glory. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb. I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone, causing the omens of boasters to fail, making fools of diviners, causing wise men to draw back and turning their knowledge into foolishness, confirming the word of his servant and performing the purpose of his messengers. It is I who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up her ruins again. And it is I who say to the depths of the sea, be dried up, and I will make your rivers dry. It is I who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, She will be built, and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. And so in this little section, we see brief glimpses of what's going to happen hundreds of years later when Cyrus the Persian sends the people back, pays out of the royal treasury for the restoration of the wall and of the temple under the ministries of Ezra and Nehemiah. We see God's fulfillment of his promise to restore his people. Yes, they will face judgment. Yes, they will be purged of their sin. Yes, they will be in exile for a long time, for several generations. And yet, at the end of that time, they are going to return to the land because God is faithful and keeps his promises. So these are the key themes that we see, that Judah's holy God will restore sinful people to holiness by his own righteousness and salvation. Going back now to consider the audience of this book, I think there are several audiences to whom Isaiah was writing. Uh, While the liberal scholars are off base in assuming multiple authors wrote the book, there are, in fact, I believe, multiple audiences to whom Isaiah uh, intended his words to come. The first and primary audience is clearly sinful Judah. There might have been hope at the beginning that they could turn aside and God's wrath would be delayed or put off or even turned aside completely if they had repented. Yes, Uzziah in his pride was cast down in God's judgment. Yes, the people were still worshiping in every high place and offering incense to strange gods, but there was an opportunity for them to repent. Isaiah ministers during the reign of four kings. There was time for Judah to repent, especially when they saw what was coming upon Israel as they're conquered by the Assyrians. There's another hundred years before they're conquered by Babylon. They could have repented. But by Hezekiah's time, near the end of Isaiah's ministry, it's no longer a question of if judgment will come, but a question of when. God says to Hezekiah, you've been faithful, so it's not going to come in your lifetime, but it is going to come upon your sons and grandsons. So the first audience is sinful Judah. The second audience is sinful Judah restored into the land. The nation that will return in exile, looking back on God's promises and seeing many of them fulfilled. And that's why I think someone who's an unbeliever and doesn't believe in inspiration looks at all the things in the second half of the book and says, well, they can have nothing to do with the first half of the book because how could he possibly know and be writing so specifically to this future audience? Because God helped him to do so. 
Isaiah 44 and 45. God speaks through Isaiah of Cyrus the Persian as his servant. Several hundred years before Cyrus is even born to be his servant, he says he's going to restore my people to the land. The audience that is then restored to the land is going to need the encouragement to look back and say, God knew this was happening generations before, said it was going to happen, kept his promise, has brought us back to the land. Now let us serve God after he has purified us of the idolatry that had been part of our, our heritage for so many generations. God had not forgotten them, and God intended to work among them despite the great sins of their forefathers and despite their own sinfulness. A third audience that might not be as obvious, I think, is that of Gentiles. The nations outside of Israel and Judah are at least a third audience of Isaiah's book. God makes promises of salvation to them. For example, Isaiah chapter 56. In verse 3 and 4, it says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant. To them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. Also the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord. To be his servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. The Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel declares, Yet others I will gather to them, to those already gathered. Any echoes of John 10, Other sheep I have which are not of this fold, which I will also bring? Consider, and this is very profound as I was thinking about this, Acts chapter 8. You have someone who's a foreigner, he's from Ethiopia, and someone who's a eunuch. He has been cut off in a way that he will never have children. He reads Isaiah 53. He says to Philip, what's this about? He keeps reading the book. He comes to, I assume, I don't know this for sure, but it's likely to assume that if he got to chapter 53 that he finishes the book, right? He gets to chapter 56. To those who come and believe in me, who follow me faithfully, who turn to me, they have a name and they have a place among my people. Where do we see that elsewhere in Scripture? The people who are not my people now are my people. The people who are cast aside now have a place among me. We see it in First and Second Peter. By the ministry of Jesus... Someone hundreds of years later reads the words of Isaiah and sees in them a fulfillment for himself that he now has a place through the work of Jesus among God's people in a family where there was no hope in any earthly sense of having a family. Take that a step further and jump 2,000 years more till today. Most of us are not of a background of being one of the tribes of Israel. Certainly not in any pure-blooded sense. Some of us have no family in a human sense. And yet, the offer of the gospel to those who believe in Jesus is, I will give you a name, connection with the name of Jesus that is above every name, connection with the name of Jesus 
that is the only name by which people will be saved, connection with the name of Jesus that brings with it the promise of all of the blessings anticipated in the Old and New Testament, and a family, a family in which there's no longer division between Jews and Gentiles, but rather a joining of all of these people together, not because of some sort of forced grouping, but because as they draw closer to God, they draw closer to one another, and those, those relationships are healed, and now there is a connection for people to have family, or maybe they have no earthly family, or they have uh, rifts with their earthly family. That same thing that the Ethiopian eunuch experienced is something that you and I can experience. That same hope that Isaiah wrote to people 700 years before the birth of Christ is something that's relevant for today. And so how can we benefit by studying Isaiah? We can learn what the book is about. God's holiness and His salvation are the two most prominent themes in the book. Of all the books in the Old Testament, Isaiah is second to, I think, Leviticus in the number of times it mentions God's holiness. And in terms of the idea of salvation, I think it has the most occurrences of the word salvation in the book. If, if not that, it's, 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 a, it's in the top three. And so these are very prominent themes that are united uniquely in the book of Isaiah. Going back to the other question I asked, how does it compare to other books of prophecy? Well, we can look at this book that has both history and prophecy and look at other books of history and prophecy like 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, some of the other prophets like I mentioned, Hosea and Amos, who are contemporaries to Isaiah. And as we study Isaiah, we gain tools for studying those books as well. We see how they all fit together chronologically and historically and in a unified message that God sends to his people and to the surrounding nations. And the tools that we gain from studying a book like Isaiah help us to look at similar prophetic statements and historical statements and think about how to approach them in a way that, that accurately represents what the text is saying. Because I think sometimes we look at prophecy, much like in the New Testament we look at Revelation, we're like, we don't know what to do with that. In the Old Testament we look at some of the prophetic books and we say, well, we don't know what to do with all this prophecy. But if we have tools to understand that better as we walk through it, then we're equipped to look at other prophetic books. And I'll be honest, some of the minor prophets, I think, are even far harder than Isaiah to understand. Uh, there was a Sunday school class that we went to when we were at Inner City, and uh, one of the seminary professors walked us through, I think it was uh, one of the final uh, of, the, of the minor prophets, and it was very complicated, the imagery and everything else. But to be better prepared to look at a book like that that has even more obscure references, we look at a book like Isaiah that has very clear tie-ins to prophecy to the Old and New Testament, and, and we're better equipped to understand the rest of Scripture. Third, uh, and perhaps even more importantly than just knowing things about the book and being equipped to look at other books in the Bible, we need Isaiah's words today. We need them to remind us of God's great plan for salvation that involves the restoration not only of his people, but of Gentile nations to being connected with God in a way that they are rightfully worshiping him and following him. We need a book like Isaiah to point out our own sinfulness and our need for salvation by God's mighty power instead of by our own strength. We need a book like Isaiah to remind us of the central work of Jesus and God's plan how he fulfills even many of Isaiah's prophecies in his own life and death and related events. These and many other benefits make Isaiah relevant for us today, though it was written so long ago. Most of all, and I've said this several times because I want you to remember this, we need to remember this, Judah's holy God will restore sinful people to holiness by his own righteousness and salvation. 
God is the one who does salvation, not us. God is the one who gets credit for it, not us. We are sinful. We need restoration. We need redemption. And that's how the book of Isaiah ends. But that only comes through God's work and God's power. So the point is not for us to sit around and sort of wait like, well, if God wants to do it, he'll do it. That's not what I'm saying by that. But what I'm saying is, every day we need to be reminded that the salvation that we have if we've turned to Jesus to trust in him is not our work but God's. It's not for us but for God. And we have great benefit from it and we should rejoice in it every day. But God gets the glory for it and God has saved us for a purpose to follow after him to make us holy as this book will show us And we see those themes echoed throughout the New Testament as well. Judah's holy God will restore sinful people to holiness by his own righteousness and salvation. And we'll start looking at that next week with chapter 1. Let's pray. Dear God, as we have done this very brief and very rapid survey of the book of Isaiah, I pray that some of the key ideas will stick, that we'll revisit them as we go throughout the book, that it will be a study that is not something that we feel is, is... disconnected or way off in the past has nothing to do with us but we'll see that your word is alive and active and able to penetrate to our deepest thoughts and desires to reveal our sinfulness to restore us to right relationship with you to cause us to proclaim how great you are to those around us to point us with hope to the future of what you have promised to take place we pray that you accomplish these purposes in us and we will reflect on them even this week we pray this in christ's name Amen.